Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our discussion today on airway clearance in the critically ill patient in the PQ. We'll focus on the use of pharmacological as well as non-pharmacological techniques in the critically ill children admitted to the ICU. This episode will be a general overview as specific clinical scenarios such as neuromuscular disease may warrant specific therapeutics. Let's get started with the case, Rahul. We have an eight-month-old ex-34-week premature baby intubated for acute respiratory failure secondary to RSV bronchiolitis. The patient is on a conventional mechanical ventilator receiving a tidal volume of 6 mLs per kilo, rate of 20, PEEP of 6, 40% FiO2, and an eye time of 0.7. Her chest x-ray shows a pattern suggestive of viral pneumonia with minimal hyperinflation and atelectasis of the right middle lobe. The patient has excessive secretions when the suction catheter is assessed. The patient is hemodynamically stable and is on NG tube feeds. So Rahul, let's get started with airway clearance. But can you tell us how a child clears his or her pulmonary secretions normally when they are not ill? This is an excellent question, and I'm excited to review the normal physiology before we get into specifics. Normally, some baseline secretions are produced by all humans. It is actually physiologic. Normal bronchial secretions are actually made up of contributions from mucus-secreting cells, also known as goblet cells. There are also other cells in the respiratory tree that secrete more serous fluids. The ciliary epithelium made up of columnar cells that line the entire tracheobronchial tree up to the alveolar ducts contain these goblet cells. The ciliary epithelium also have these small little hair-like projections known as cilia that create a coordinated rhythmic force that propels the overlying mucus blanket towards the central airways and the upper respiratory tract. So primary mechanisms of tracheobronchial clearance of these secretions consists of the following. Number one, the mucociliary escalator in the smaller airways. And number two, the presence of a cough in the central and larger airways. The coordinating activity of the beating cilia and their interaction with the overlying viscoelastic layer of mucus make up the mucociliary escalator. The mucociliary escalator helps remove both healthy and pathologic secretions from the airways, as well as removal of inhaled particles. This mucociliary transport can be affected by many infectious etiologies, things like mycoplasma, influenza, as well as other viruses and toxins. In adult patients, think about cigarette smoking or even vaping. Other specific pediatric ICU conditions that could alter the mucociliary escalator could be things like cystic fibrosis, asthma, ciliary dyskinesia, These are just a few, uh, Pradeep, and we'll get into specifics later on. All in all, remember that the mucociliary escalator is actually going to be present in the smaller airways. And so once the secretions are in the larger central airways, they are either coughed out or actually swallowed. So let's go ahead and transition and talk a little bit about how one generates an effective cough. Pradeep, what are your thoughts on this? Rahul, that's a great question. 
So in order for someone to generate an effective cough, one needs to first of all take a sufficiently deep breath. The glottis needs to close briefly to allow increase in intrathoracic pressure. And then that is followed by expulsive glottic opening together with abdominal muscle contraction, which results in air being forcefully expelled out. That's a great point. Now, individuals with neuromuscular disease, bulbar insufficiency, obtunded patients, those on mechanical ventilation with chemical neuromuscular blockade, severe skeletal deformities, these patients may all have decreased cough and expiratory airflow. Now, the reduced ability to cough results in secretion retention, mucus plugging, atelectasis, VQ mismatch, and predisposition to infection, even if the underlying mucociliary escalator function is normal. So remember, it's a balance between the mucociliary escalator and your ability to cough. So Pradeep, in the summary, I did just mention atelectasis. Can you just talk a little bit about the definition of atelectasis? Absolutely. First of all, the term atelectasis means imperfect expansion and indicates reversible loss of aerated lung with otherwise normal lung parenchyma. That's a really nice, concise definition. So if atelectasis represents imperfect expansion, what are mechanisms which just keep our lungs open physiologically? So Rahul, physiologically, there are three major mechanisms. Pulmonary surfactant, collateral ventilation, and lung and chest wall balance. Now let's go into detail of each of this. Now the pulmonary surfactant that covers the large alveolar surface is composed mainly of phospholipids, and its most important one is phosphatidylcholine. Neutral lipids and surfactant-specific apoproteins, termed surfactant proteins A, B, C, and D. By reducing alveolar surface tension, the pulmonary surfactant stabilizes the alveoli and prevents alveolar collapse. The second important mechanism is the collateral ventilating mechanism. Intraalveolar pores and bronchial alveolar communications prevent alveolar collapse. The interalveolar pores by which alveoli are connected to each other are called the pores of cone, K-O-H-N. There also exist connections between distal bronchioles and neighboring alveoli called channels of Lambert. These structures can aerate hundreds of alveoli adjacent to a bronchiole preventing collapse of one in case there is resorption of air from the alveolus. Resorption occurs when airway becomes occluded, the air that is trapped in the lung units ventilated by that airway, and the trapped gases are absorbed by the perfusing blood. Collapse of an alveoli happens whenever the air that is trapped inside is resorbed by the blood. Oxygen is absorbed faster than nitrogen from the alveolus into the blood, resulting collapsed lung postoperatively, especially if high oxygen concentrations are used. The third important mechanism by which we do not get atelectasis normally is because there's a fine balance between the inward recoil of the lung tissue and the outward expansion of the chest wall. The myoelastic element, smooth muscle fibers, interwoven with elastic fibers in the distal airway and the alveolar sacs, are opposed by the outward recoil of the chest wall. An exact balance of these forces is essentially FRC at the end of a normal exhalation. Any imbalance of these forces which keep the lung open can predispose to atelectasis. 
An example is chest wall instability. To provide outward recoil is the reason a patient with pneumothorax develops lung collapse. Awesome. So let's go ahead and quickly summarize. Atelectasis represents airway collapse. In order to keep alveoli open, our body's mechanisms normally include the presence of pulmonary surfactant, the ability to have collateral ventilation, and the nirvana of the lung, which is FRC. So Rahul, let's transition and talk about the various types of atelectasis and the diseases we encounter in the PQ, which can create imperfect expansion of the alveoli. Surfactant deficiency or dysfunction is going to be one of the major mechanisms. So this is going to be your infant with surfactant deficiency or a neonate with prematurity. Patients who also have ARDS or near drowning can have surfactant deficiency. Patients who have hydrocarbon ingestion can have surfactant dysfunction. All of these can lead to atelectasis. The more common mechanism of atelectasis is something called resorption atelectasis. Resorption atelectasis is actually going to be caused by high FiO2 concentration, and it can also be caused by intrabronchial obstruction, such as inflammation, infection, mucus plugs, and foreign bodies. Another mechanism to consider for atelectasis is an extrinsic compression of the small airways. So this is where you're basically compressing the normal lung tissue. Think about pleural effusions, chylothorax, cardiac enlargements, or even mediastinal masses. Extrabronchial compression can be due to vascular rings, lobar emphysema, or by local lymph nodes. All in all, when you have atelectasis, you run the risk of having decreased lung compliance, impairment of oxygenation, increased pulmonary vascular resistance, and overall development of lung injury. In asthma and bronchiolitis, the right middle lobe and the lingular segment are the most common areas for atelectasis. And sometimes this is actually called as the middle lobe syndrome. It is possible that hilar lymph node enlargement due to viral infection and subsequent compression of the middle lobe bronchus may be a cause for this preferred location of atelectasis in viral bronchiolitis and asthma. That's a great summary, Pradeep. So what are the clinical consequences of atelectasis? That's a great question, Rahul. You know, and in many processes, clinical consequences will depend on the patient's age, the rate of formation, extent, and the course of the underlying cause of atelectasis. But in general, what happens is going back to our case, a critically ill patient, such as an intubated infant with bronchiolitis, on moderate vent settings, development of atelectasis can lead to rapid deterioration. This is contrasted in a clinically stable child admitted postoperatively for a non-pulmonary reason who is on room air, a significant atelectasis may go completely unnoticed and detected only by a chest radiograph. So Rahul, how is atelectasis treated in the PICU patient admitted for acute illness, i.e. without chronic neuromuscular condition? So one of the primary approaches to tackle atelectasis involves airway clearance or chest physiotherapy, also known as pulmonary toilet. Now, pulmonary toilet is an outdated term, so the correct terms right now presently are airway clearance or chest physiotherapy. Now, this refers to a spectrum of physical and mechanical interventions aimed at interacting therapeutically with acute and chronic respiratory disorders. 
So over the next few minutes, we will actually cover some primary approaches ranging from suctioning to manual CPT, et cetera. So to start, one of the most simple modalities of airway clearance is suctioning. In infants and toddlers with small endotracheal tubes, transport of secretions may be hampered by the actual size of the endotracheal tube. These children with their endotracheal tubes are also going to be on sedation and neuromuscular blockers. And so these may actually diminish the innate cough reflex. The suction actually acts like a cough substitute. So the type of catheter, its size, depth of insertion are all standardized, and most centers have their own policies and procedures for suctioning. And typically, this can be done by the bedside respiratory therapist or caretaking nurse. Pre-oxygenation prior to suctioning or mechanical hyperinflation post-suctioning are strategies that can prevent acute hypoxemia. Another useful technique is postural drainage which is easily achieved in intubated patients. Gravity helps mobilize and transport secretions. So if the atelectasis is in the right lung, then placing the patient in the left lateral decubitus position so that the right side is up will help aerate or open up that right lung. Remember the concept that air rises. This can be helped with chest percussion as an adjunct. So this is where their respiratory therapist cup their hands or a small cushion mask and mechanically percuss the chest. Vibration or manual compression can also be used. This is primarily used in small infants and toddlers, especially if they are intubated. Rahul, that's great. And I would like to add that uh, it's important to have a sedation management plan that goes along with the patient needs during these interventions. Additionally, Rahul, gentle bagging, sometimes with saline lavage, uh, leading to an increase in lung volume and manual hyperinflation may also help to open the lung segment. But we need to be careful not to de-recruit the lung by frequent disconnection uh, from the ventilator to do this bag mask lavage. So Pradeep, what are some of the mechanical devices that we use in the PICU to help conventional chest physiotherapy? This is a great question. And to be honest, each type of chest physiotherapy has its own risks and benefits. Let's now review the most commonly used ones. Number one is incentive spirometry. Number two is intrapulmonary percussive ventilation, mechanical inexufflator or cough assist, flutter or a cappella, and the vest therapy. Now, incentive spirometry is the most commonly used, especially in a post-operative child. The basis for incentive spirometry involves having the patient take a sustained maximal inspiration. A sustained maximal inspiration is a slow, deep inspiration from the FRC up to almost total lung capacity, followed by greater than five seconds of breath hold. An incentive spirometer is a medical device that facilitates this sustained maximal inspiration. The device gives the individual the visual feedback regarding flow and volume and can prevent and reverse atelectasis when used appropriately and regularly. Patients who are at risk for developing atelectasis due to immobility, especially postoperatively, may be helped by the use of incentive spirometer. It can also help improve lung volume, optimize oxygenation, and maintain inspiratory muscle strength. One study 
published in the Journal of Pediatric Hematology Oncology reported that mandatory inspiratory spirometry for patients with sickle cell disease admitted without respiratory complaints reduces transfusions and acute chest syndrome, particularly for those presenting with back pain. The second commonly used device is the intrapulmonary percussive ventilator, or commonly referred to as IPV. Now, IPV delivers high-flow jets of air to the airways by a pneumatic flow interrupter at a rate of 100 to 300 cycles per minute through a mouthpiece. Patient controls variables such as inspiratory time, peak pressure, and delivery rates. IPV has been shown to be beneficial for secretion clearance, particularly for cystic fibrosis patients, and improvement in atelectasis in intubated patients. Mechanical inexufflator or cough assist is a portable electrical mechanical insufflation exufflation device that attempts to simulate a cough by using a blower and valve to alternatively apply a positive and then a negative pressure to the patient's airway to assist the patient in clearing retained bronchopulmonary secretion. Wrapping up this section, let's go ahead and talk about flutter and acapella devices. Now, these are small handheld devices that provide positive expiratory pressure or PEP. Patients are going to exhale through these devices and create oscillations in the airway, resulting in loosening of mucus. The fifth and final approach that we can use in the PICU is the percussive vest. Now, this is a high-frequency chest wall vibrating vest device that has been shown to mobilize secretions, especially in patients with cystic fibrosis, and is commonly used as an airway adjunct for airway clearance, especially in children who have neuromuscular abnormalities. So to summarize, we talked about IS or incentive spirometry, IPV or intrapulmonary percussive ventilation, three, mechanical inexufflator or cough assist, four, flutter or acapella, and five, vest therapy. Rahul, can you comment on the most commonly used pharmacological therapies in PQ for every clearance? Absolutely. So let's first talk about saline. So normal saline, 0.9% normal saline, enables clearance of secretions, especially in an intubated patient. Normal saline loosens secretions, lubricates the endotracheal tube, enhances cough, as well as decreases the viscosity of the secretions. Studies are mixed as to the benefit of using saline installation prior to suctioning in intubated patients. However, this is commonly used in day-to-day practice. One pediatric randomized control trial published in the American Journal of Critical Care in the early 2000s looked at post-operative patients with congenital heart disease. Now, in this population, there was no benefit with regards to incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia or mucus plugging with the use of normal saline. They also found, similar to adult studies, a drop in oxygenation from baseline in the group that used normal saline. Uh, The second one uh, that we commonly use is hypertonic saline. Although uh, shown to be beneficial in children with cystic fibrosis who are greater than six years of age, one study in fact showed no benefit in children under six years of age. In bronchiolitis, hypertonic saline use is believed to help by decreasing airway edema and thinning of mucus to alleviate plugging by the osmotic effect of hypertonic saline. Now, literature about 3% hypertonic saline has been conflicting at best. 
with some studies showing benefit with regards to length of stay and symptom score and others showing no benefit. 2017 Cochrane database review published by Zhang et al. reported that nebulized hypertonic saline may modestly reduce length of stay among infants hospitalized with acute bronchiolitis and improve clinical severity score. Treatment with nebulized hypertonic saline may also reduce the risk of hospitalization among outpatients and emergency department patients. However, we assess the quality of evidence as low to moderate. Quality of evidence is moderate due to substantial clinical heterogeneity between studies and large multicentral trials are still warranted. Absolutely, Pradeep. Actually, one PICU randomized study by Shine et al. reported on 18 intubated patients, nine in each group, receiving either hypertonic saline or normal saline, used four times a day for seven days. They found no difference in any outcome measures between the two groups after adjustment for baseline differences in respiratory parameters. So Pradeep, I have heard N-acetylcysteine or mucormist used as a pharmacological agent. How does this work? Uh, N-acetylcysteine or mucormist hydrolyzes the disulfide bonds of mucins and other proteins. The sodium salts of uh, N-acetylcysteine may also help disrupt the DNA. Animal studies suggest that there may be some benefit to the airway due to its antioxidant effect. Now, its use in ARDS has not shown any benefit, although one study in pediatric burn patients, the combination of N-acetylcysteine and heparin resulted in lower rates of reintubation, atelectasis, and mortality. And this was published in the Journal of Burn Care Rehabilitation. So Rahul, what is a Dornase Alpha? So Dornase Alpha is a recombinant human DNase, which degrades DNA of neutrophils, which migrate to the airway in inflammatory conditions. DNA from neutrophils increases the viscosity of the sputum and mucus plugging in the airway. So this Dornase Alpha decreases mucus viscosity and helps its clearance from the airway. A Cochrane database review from 2018 reported improved lung function especially in patients with cystic fibrosis who had long-term use of Dornase Alpha. There was a decrease in pulmonary exacerbations in trials of six months or longer. A meta-analysis from 2012 reported no benefit with respect to clinical scores in patients with bronchiolitis, but longer duration of hospitalization. So I just want to caution you before using DNAs in this bronchiolitis population. Nebulized heparin has been used in burn patients. It actually changes the consistency of sputum, the elasticity of mucus, and may have antibacterial effects on certain pathogens. It has been shown to enhance the effect of Dornase Alpha in cystic fibrosis patients. So as a summary, many of these pharmacological agents are actually best studied in the cystic fibrosis population where airway clearance is paramount to their overall health. I think the literature is mixed in other populations, especially the ones that we see in the PICU. That's excellent, Rahul. Now, uh, can you uh, tell us about the role of bronchoscopy in uh, secretion clearance in the PICU? Absolutely. So bronchoscopy can be used for secretion clearance from airways, especially in patients with head injury who are at risk for intracranial hypertension from non-pharmacological airway clearance techniques, such as IPV or percussive vest therapy. In these patients, 
using these therapies may actually increase their intracranial pressure. Bronchoscopy allows for the ability to get a biologic sample for gram stain and culture, and this really helps your diagnostic yield. Bronchoscopy can also help reveal the cause of atelectasis. And as you're directly visualizing the tracheobronchial tree, you can look at extrinsic compression of airways due to cardiomyopathy, mucus plugging, etc. Additionally, bronchoscopy can help with local installation of mucolytics into the airways. As we close this episode, let's take an extreme example we see in the PICU. So say, Pradeep, we have a patient intubated for ARDS, they're progressively hypoxemic, and they get converted to high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. What are some clinical pearls you have for airway clearance in these circumstances? So Rahul, first of all, when a patient is on high-frequency oscillator, any blood, secretions, pulmonary edema fluid, mucus plugging, etc. in the airway can impede oxygenation and ventilation. Ideally, a patient should be suctioned with manual bag mask ventilation with a PEEP valve prior to initiation of high frequency. Sometimes I've even used bronchoscopy uh, prior to using high frequency. Tracheal suctioning is best avoided in the first 12 hours when high frequency is initiated to allow alveolar recruitment. Most high frequency oscillator setups will have an inline closed suctioning catheter just like a conventional ventilator, but routine scheduled suctioning is avoided unless there is suspicion of ET tube occlusion in order to prevent de-recruitment. Now, during high frequency, sometimes suctioning may be required to, for acute ET tube uh, occlusion due to secretions, which can manifest as decreased uh, vigor, a rising PCO2, hypoxia, and increasing FiO2 requirement. Now, open suctioning Using saline with bag mass ventilation should be attempted only briefly after taking patient off high frequency in the above conditions. Now, lung recruitment using a higher mean airway pressure may be required following the suctioning to prevent de-recruitment. Now, Rahul, can you comment on additional practical strategies that are used in our PQ? Absolutely. Along with all of the airway clearance strategies we talked about, I think it is very important to optimize the use of your sedation and neuromuscular blockade. Additionally, I do want to mention that many PICUs now are following the Society for Critical Care Medicine's ICU Liberation Bundle, which includes early mobility and assessing extubation readiness. As a summary, there is a limited role for routine pharmacological and non-pharmacological airway clearance in acutely ill pediatric ICU patients. Exceptions can be made on a case-by-case basis. For example, if they have cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, or underlying neuromuscular disorders. Assistance with airway clearance is critical for reducing morbidity and mortality in children, especially as they develop neuromuscular weakness in the ICU. It is important to have a team-based approach when considering airway clearance in critically ill PICU patients. Now, this concludes our episode on airway clearance techniques. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. 
please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management card. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.